This is the Sea to Sky podcast with Marcus, weaving through the issues in Sea to Sky country. Welcome to another edition of the Sea to Sky podcast. My name is Marcus. I'm sitting with council candidate Jenna Stoner. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. You are uh, young and fresh-faced. I'm saying I'm quite impressed with a lot of the candidates that are coming. They're, they're very young and very engaged, and it's nice to see, as I'm getting older and more crotchety, it's nice to see the younger the younger generation come out and, and partake in local politics. So welcome. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I will say I was excited to see the diversity of, of the very large candidate slate um, presented. Yeah, 22 candidates, uh, five mayoral uh, candidates, um, which is, I think, a first for Squamish. I think the most I've ever heard was three. I've, I've heard once there was four, but uh, five is definitely a record. Uh, 23, who are now 22 council candidates, is about average. But uh, the trick is, is how to stand out from those 22. So please, Jenna, tell me, how are you going to stand out from those 22 candidates? Why should we elect you? Yeah, so I'm, I threw my name in the hat first and foremost because I'm excited to work with the community to make sure that this stays a place where we can all live, we can all grow, and we can all belong here. Um, Squamish, obviously, is, is at a little bit of a crossroads. There's a lot of challenges that it's facing. There's lots of opportunities as well. I'm looking forward to helping us through kind of this challenging situation. I am young, but I am also experienced. I'm skilled. Uh, and I'm passionate and I have the time and the capacity to put towards this community to make it the best place it can be. And what kind of skills do you bring to the table? I've spent almost 10 years working at this intersection between business, government, and environmental conservation. My day job is working specifically with businesses and governments to improve seafood production practices, which is a little bit random, um, but it has allowed me to uh, become a really strong facilitator and implementer of stepwise solutions to try and achieve long-term challenging goals or complex goals, which is really where I think we are at in Squamish. We have recently spent the last two years developing our, our OCP, which has taken 18-plus um, months of community engagement. It's a really strong framework for, for moving this community forward, but we need to start acting on it. We need to start putting an implementation plan in place. And, and I bring those skills where we can start step-by-step um, step figuring out how do we actually get to where it is that we want to go. And you're talking about dealing with different levels of government. So obviously now when you're talking about different levels of government, when it comes to terms of Squamish, we're talking about transportation. Uh, we're talking about maybe some housing credits or, or to different uh, programs to help with the housing needs here uh, or many other things. Is, is, this, is this like the top of your of your platform? Where, where do you think we should be starting first? What's most important? Yeah, so I think first and foremost is trying to address this dichotomy between what we really need to do is address the livability issues in our town, making sure that this is somewhere that people can afford to live. Um, that's housing, that's transportation, that is cost of living and marry that up with the very immediate need of trying to diversify our economy and making sure that we have a broad tax base in order to kind of alleviate some of the, the pressures that we have with regards to infrastructure maintenance and growing some of the services that we need to support our growing community. It is very fast growing, indeed. And the, yes, the amenities haven't really caught up, but there's a certain thing where municipal governments, as a, as a council level, I mean, what, what can you influence in terms of cost of living? A lot of people say, you know, the market is this, the market is that. I mean, how much control would you say you would have over the market? It's a really, really good question. And the municipal governments are limited in, in the tools that they have in their toolbox to be able to address some of these complex, multi-level issues. But that doesn't mean that we don't have tools. The, the main asset that a municipality has is land. 
And so first and foremost, we need to be able to appropriately zone the land that we have and make sure that we have a strong plan in place for how we want to grow sustainably within the land that we have, particularly in Squamish, where we're obviously in a valley, we're at the head of an inlet, we don't have very much land. And so we need to be very careful on how we manage that. And then really the other key tool that we have, and there, there are a few others, but the other key tool that we have is, is putting in policies and bylaws to help direct development. Those can often be fairly blunt tools. Um, they're not necessarily able to provide the level of detail that sometimes we would, lo- we would like them to have, but they are the best tools that we have in our toolbox to be able to direct to some of the solutions for these big challenges. And so in particular, things like affordable housing, the current council actually just received a really, really interesting affordable housing program document from a consulting firm that proposes some really innovative, forward-thinking ways that we can amend our community amenities contribution policy, ensure that we have purpose-built affordable housing, and start to address some of those issues so that we have we have some immediate solutions to to a challenging solution. And housing is an issue, but again, when it comes to market forces, the reason why a lot of rental housing hasn't come the way it has is because the market hasn't dictated it yet. And there's a lot of other things that we can do, I know, when it comes to implementation of regulation for housing, like uh, letting people, if they're doing, if people are building homes and they have rental suites, you can give them uh, incentives to do that. There's the Airbnb, uh, Airbnb issue and, and a few others. But I mean, how, how do you plan? Because a lot of the space that we have has already been shifted over to residential. And so we want to bring in business and more business means more tax dollars. And then we can have our projects like affordable housing and that sort of thing. So right now it's kind of a fine line. And so where, where would you think you would start? Like what tools would you be in our, our, in our toolkit to sort of get our way back to where you would envision Squamish to be? Do you, do you think there were some failings on the previous government or do you think you're just going to carry on from what they have been putting together or is there something of a, of a new direction you'd like to take? I think we can start expediting some of the processes that were in place by the previous government. So current sitting council, as I, as I previously mentioned, spent a lot of the time in a very necessary part of the phase, which is developing our strategic plans, updating the official community plan. It took a lot of time, it took a lot of energy, but it took a lot of community engagement, which was really, really necessary to make sure that we have a solid plan in place. The same thing is happening at the regional district. The regional growth strategy has also been revised over the last 18 months, it's about to get adopted, or has to go through final reading. And so we are at a stage where we now have some very clear direction from our community about what it is that we want. And so we need to move into this implementation phase, and that is amending those policies, whether it's around affordable housing, whether it's around regional transit or local transit and accessible transit, and then ensuring that we protect and maintain our employable lands as well. I'm not going to say that we're going to have the best of both worlds. It's going to be a challenging four years. Um, the, the scale of change is happening quicker than we can respond to it but we can amend the processes in place to make sure that we're starting to address that that challenge sooner rather than later. So you're talking about amending processes. What's what's currently hindering the implementation of these things? So what, what's slowing us down? Or it's happening so fast, but we haven't had a chance to implement. What's causing the, the lack of implementation? So I think a large part of it was just time and capacity. We were waiting for the OCP to be finalized. Um, we were waiting for some of the very important research pieces to fall into place. And so as I mentioned, we just got a report on the Squamish Affordable Housing Program. 
And there are a few others like that, whether it's the marine strategy that has recently been updated, the flood hazard management plan, some of these really big questions that we need to make sure that we were informed as a community about what the risks were and what are the best practice solutions for us to follow moving forward. It's funny, it, you're, you're the first to bring up the marine strategy or, or the floods, I guess, since your business is dealing with waters itself, that you're the first to bring that up. So what, what issue with the, the marine strategy do you think that we should be moving forward with? So the marine strategy, um, as I mentioned, has gone through second reading. It hasn't fully been adopted yet, but it has been updated. A key part of it is making sure that we maintain some of that waterfront land for industrial use. It is a key part of our economy and maintaining that connection to the the waterway is really critical. It also looks at how we can obviously steward some of that land and make sure that it remains accessible to the public so that we're, we're really working towards a working waterfront. Right now, a lot of people don't really access the waterfront, although it's such a key asset mm -hmm. um, to our community. And so moving forward on how it is that we can still protect that as part of our industrial land, as part of our industrial tax base, but still make it accessible to to the public so are you talking about having industry move into the waterfront or are you talking about the waterfront itself at the end of cleveland are you looking at developing all that area or because i know the waterfront at the end should be developed been talking yeah about so that there's the oceanfront so. development that yeah. is going in the plans around that are, are largely in motion a large part of it is protect, making sure that we protect the port and the terminal. That's right. And then there's also there's a lot of interesting work that's going on with regards to the spit. There's actually been a, a recent agreement with DFO that um, a large portion of the spit is actually going to be taken out for salmon, rest, salmon habitat restoration. Right. And so making sure that there is still access um, to that waterway for recreation access. I understand we have to protect the estuary, but the, the windsurfing is a big draw, it's a big tourist draw here. I mean, the, the town is called Mother of Wind. So removing the spit for, for salmon ha habitat, I'm actually quite surprised that went through. Yeah, so so to clarify, we're not removing, the, the spit is not going to be removed entirely. There's still going to be access um, access for the water sports. Speaking of uh, industries on the water, I have to ask, because it's going to be a topic, uh, and you know it's coming, uh, LNG, but I think we need to sort of deal with it now. I yeah, think. there's no doubt. In some ways, I would say it's here. Yeah. Um, the reality of that proposal is that it has been approved. There's very little within the sphere of influence of the municipality um, in terms of whether that project is going to go ahead or not. Where we sit is that we actually just need to negotiate, sit down at the negotiating table with Wood Fiber LNG um, and determine draw the, what the conditions are for them to be there. They will bring tax dollars to the municipality, which are very much needed. And so let's sit down and talk about tax base. Let's sit down and talk about access to Daryl Bay and maintaining some public access on that waterfront. And then also, this is a little bit of a, a detailed piece of, of that equation, but there's currently no national regulations around the safety of LNG tankers. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to work with the federal government and make sure that there are, that there are some safety recommendations in place for how to, how those LNG tankers are being operated. My, my partner, Alan, would, would jump in here. I know he would say, like, has there been no, there's been no accident with LNG ever in its history? He, he loves reiterating that. Uh, but I do know that they're using some old refitted ships and that some of these ships do need to be sort of uh, looked at. Um, I think, honestly, LNG should, part of the package is uh, ensuring if there ever were a spill, that there'd be a way of cleanup, efficient response, and that sort of thing. And not, not many people are, are talking about that. I know it's come up in a few issues, but I think what we're all looking for is LNG to bring in the tax dollars, but also be responsible in itself, that if something happens, they're there to sort of react to any calamity that may happen. Totally. And that is a, that is a big part of businesses acting responsibly. And I think that it is expected across the board now. You can't try and duck under that bar. You need to set a high bar. You need to be there 
if things happen. And, and that's what we expect of wood fiber. So now it's a chicken and egg question I, I tend to ask is um, because we need to bring business to diversify the economy, but then we also need the housing to bring in these businesses. So where do you start? It's definitely a chicken and an egg question, but it doesn't have to be an either or, I don't think. So there are projects in place moving forward on both of those. And I don't think you can look at one and not look at the other. They're definitely interconnected. We're not going to be able to attract businesses here small to medium, large-scale enterprises, if their workers can't find affordable housing, if their workers can't get around on accessible, affordable transit. Both of those pieces have to be addressed at the same time. I don't think that there's an easy answer. It's not an either-or. We have to look at both together and immediately. Well, it comes down to what kind of companies you're attracting. Um, I've talked to Jeff Cook and I've talked to Paul Lawley and they like to bring in businesses of, uh, of a certain value with a certain amount of staff at a certain salary base, which means at that salary base, we're looking at accommodating maybe more single family homes, uh, more, more townhomes here or there, but the space is kind of not there. And also if you want to bring up these companies, you need to sort of incentivize some companies to move up here. Yes. You can say it's so beautiful up here. Yeah. That's not enough to bring them here. <laughs> exactly. That's the big answer I always get. It's like, well, this lifestyle up here helps with staff with this and this and this, but I don't feel convinced. You seem not to be too convinced by that notion either. I'm not entirely convinced by that notion. Um, I do think the lifestyle is one draw. It's the reason why a lot of us have moved up here. I moved here five years ago with my husband because we wanted to live in the place where we found ourselves playing all the time. Um, that is a common narrative, but it is not the only narrative in town by any means. Our natural assets, our recreation, tourism are huge assets to this community, but it is not the only thing that holds this community together. There needs to be more investment in community gathering spaces, in the social services, in the arts, so that we can start becoming a more well-rounded, more vibrant community. Again, it goes back to trying to ensure that everybody in this community has belonging and a sense of place. And I think that that is really key in order to be attractive to these large-scale companies because as much as it is really great that we love our recreation, we love our tourism, it is not the sales pitch for everybody. And so those very large-scale companies aren't going to fall in love with this place simply because of that single asset. And so there's a little bit more well-roundedness that we need to create in our community. And then we also need to, on that front, you mentioned a little bit in terms of that that kind of higher income bracket that it would potentially attract and the, and the need for more single family homes, which is another huge red flag in terms of long-term financial liabilities that we then create if we start to sprawl. Um, and so we need to really start balancing those pieces of economic development with the affordable housing strategy. But we do have a little bit of room to sprawl still. There's still some space to go. Totally. There is some space to go, but we are limited and we're going to be here for a long time. And so we need to start start kind of phasing that development a little bit better so that we do have space to grow in 15, 20 years. So what would you ask of developers then who wants to come and build? Like what would be your prerequisites for a developer when they come and say, I have this proposal? What are you looking for? That's a really great question. First and foremost, I think there are a few updates that need to happen on the policy front so that we can be very clear about what it is that we need to bring to developers. First and foremost, we have our OCP, which identifies which areas we want to infill before we start growing. And so let's look at where it is that you're proposing your development. Second, we need to make sure that there is a balance there on the community amenities contribution and or purpose-built affordable housing or rental housing as part of that development. The third is what is it that you're bringing back to the community, not just for the affordable housing piece, but also in terms of community many contributions for our shared resources. So 
infrastructure. Yeah. So far, our policies have left some money on the table. That's been a one Definitely. of those things where uh, everyone has agreed that it's false. Sure. I don't even need to ask you. Everyone's just like, yeah, yeah, we need to get more money out of these people. The thing is, the market is cooling a little bit. And I know uh, in West Van, the development has slowed down and the market is sort of reaching a sort of a, at its peak, which everyone, I think, is a sigh of relief until interest rates go up. But still, it's at that point now where I think our mindset is we can get more out of developers. But if the market starts slowing down, it's one of those things where like, dang it, I don't think we can get what we want out of these developers. So again, it's finding that fine balance is, is going to be tricky in the next couple of years. I don't envy you. It will definitely be tricky over the next few years. And it is that give and take piece. And I think we have definitely left money on the table. We can be frustrated at previous councils, previous governments for doing so. The reality is that we have seen unprecedented rates of growth that were unexpected in this community. And so I think also realizing that we didn't have all the pieces in place to be able to ask or really know what it was that we needed to ask for. Obviously, with the developments that do come forward in a cooling market, we do need to be sympathetic to to developers to a certain degree and understand what it, what are the parameters that they're operating under and how can we have a, a discussion about what it is that Squamish needs, what it is that the developer needs in order to make that a win-win situation. What about densification then? I mean, if there's a market cooling, but you don't want it to sort of sprawl too much, so where would you plan on densifying most? I mean, I know downtown, there's a lot of projects on the books right now ready to go through. We're looking at some buildings, I think six floor buildings downtown, which for me is a little unfathomable, I guess, until they build them. But where else do you think we should be densifying? Yeah, downtown's definitely number one priority as, as laid out in the OCP as well. And it is a little bit scary to think about, but I think it, it is a reality and it does follow smart growth principles to start densifying your downtown and making sure that you have a an active core. We also have seen a lot of development in kind of the Dentville area, which is also a, a, a key area for development in terms of walkability to a lot of amenities. And then also looking at, at kind of the top of Valley Cliff. And then th that means Valley Cliff downtown. Now I'm talking about access. You have one way in, one way out for both those areas. And we don't have a lot of resources to sort of create. You know, we don't have the resources to build a bridge from downtown to, to the to the highway, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> that would be this. That would be the easiest solution, but it's also the most costly. Because yeah, the talk is always about densifying, densifying, densifying. But if you can't get traffic to move in and out, I mean, right now uh, with the Jumar being in there, that's going to cause a bit of an issue. And that traffic light to get out, sometimes you wait two or three lights. I don't mind waiting an extra 30 seconds. I'm not a big like, oh, my God. But. It's still, it will add up with the more traffic coming through. So there's got to be ways of sort of opening it up. Uh, there's been talk about one-way Cleveland, parkades. What, what, what do you envision sort of alleviating some of the congestion? Yeah, so the densification piece is really important under the smart growth principles for a few reasons. One, one, it's a walkability factor, trying to get people out of their cars. And then that also has to come hand-in-hand hand with accessible and affordable transit options. That is key. The other piece in terms of just alleviating the, the vehicle traffic in and out is obviously a key issue as that starts to densify. But there are a few alternatives. I mean, if you think about government up around the estuary, if you're going north, um, that could be one option. Coming out of downtown, I think that's probably your number one option out of there. Where is that back road, right? That estuary road? The that estuary comes road. Right by, uh, behind uh, the uh, Savon Foods, right? Yes, exactly. Right. It comes across, it yeah. runs with Buckley. Yeah. It isn't an ideal solution. I mean, there's also been a fair bit of, of residential development on that back end of Buckley and then and then through the estuary. But in terms of, of reducing that impact of vehicle traffic downtown, 
we need to look at how to get people out of their cars first and foremost. It's tough when when the you know the downtown core is on a peninsula. It is a very challenging geography to work with. There's no doubt about that. So yeah, the, the next stop would be maybe if we can move Muni Hall somewhere and build a parkade right there. That'd be at some point we need to build a parkade if you need people to get out of their vehicles. Yeah, or have and have a have a park and ride solution. Definitely. My next question would be, where would you have that park and ride? <laughs> it, it can keep going. It's like a rabbit hole type of subject. It keeps going and going and going. But uh, we'll, we'll get there once once and if you're elected, we can we can start getting into the nitty gritty of the details. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's a chicken and egg sort of thing when it comes to these sort of topics. I feel like I feel like all these topics are chickens and eggs. It's everything's interconnected. I heard a really good analogy the other day. That's kind of like a giant game of Jenga. Every time you pull a piece out, it kind of wobbles a little bit and you place it and, and it stabilizes a little bit more and then you pull the next piece and it wobbles again. You're just trying to keep the tower growing and not toppling. Well, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that we're not close to toppling. No. I hope we're still kind of still steady. while We're, we're definitely still forward. steady. You know, I, I want to get to the point where we're adding bricks. You know, we, yeah. need, we need to add bricks. And speaking of adding bricks, let's talk about amenities where, yes, LNG will bring in some extra money, but then we, there's still some amenities that needs to be looked at. We're talking about Brennan Park. Uh, the extra ice sheet, we're talking about uh, the solid waste, we're talking about water, we're talking about the dump. I mean, there's a lot of environmental concerns here. I'm, I'm assuming you're very environmentally aware. Um, so how can we start fixing some of these issues, some of these amenity issues, especially with the breakneck speed we're growing at? Yeah, yeah, they're really, really great questions. And the infrastructure deficit is a huge question. I think I've heard something along the lines of $100 million some to start really addressing some of the significant gaps that we have. And there are a few different ways that we can do this. The smart growth principles for development are a huge reason why we want to look at density rather than growth. Um, it helps us use our infrastructure as efficiently as possible. The reality is that we have a, a very large dependency on residential tax bases. And it's already really expensive to live here. We can't continue to increase also, residential growth, tax rates. The rate of growth has been um, not ideal. Definitely. And so ensuring that we maintain kind of those growth density principles are really important for the long-term financial solutions. That doesn't help us immediately, but it helps us when I still live here in 20 years. <laughs> to be a little bit selfish for us in our future community. Well, that's why you're doing it. That is why I'm doing it. In terms of, of more immediate responses, there, there have been some proposals uh, that have been put forward by current council in order to deal with kind of the sewer and water systems, which I think are feasible for the time being. We have agreed and put the, the budget behind uh, extending the landfill um, vertically so that we can address some of the solid waste issues for the short term. Um, that has to go hand in hand with actually implementing our zero waste bylaw policy or zero waste bylaw so that we can actually reduce the amount of, of solid waste going to the landfill and we're recycling more, we're composting more. With regards to large infrastructure projects like Brennan Park, we need to start getting really creative, looking at public-private partnerships. What are the other models that we can use to put some of our funding, some of our municipal budget behind that, but where can we find matching funding? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to look at your partnerships. I mean, you mentioned at the top that you're good at building uh, relationships with the, the different levels of government. I mean, uh, at this point, I think with Brennan Park and comes, and also we're going to move into transit, it, those relationships will definitely come in handy. How do, you, how do you think we can approach the provincial government or the federal government for helping us with our community centers? First and foremost, I think it's building on the relationships that we already have that we've developed through existing council and through staff 
um, with their counterparts and, and going forward uh, to them and saying this is what it is that we are able to bring to the table. I think we also need to start looking at public-private partnerships. Um, so yes, the, the provincial government will be hopefully one partner at that table, but where can we find some private sector funding to bring to the table as well? Yeah, I think the corporate answer would be it. And I think that also answers uh, some of the transit issues we have, especially since Greyhound have monopoly on the transit within the corridor is no longer operating. We're going to have to build some relationships, obviously, with the provincial government and also with uh, the mayor in Whistler, who is uh, Jack. He's, he's acclaimed and he's a he's a guy who's, who wants to work on, on, on transit in the corridor. So well, what kind of solution would be best suited for Squamish? Yeah, so I, I think that the, the negotiations for regional transit are maybe further along than, than we understand them to be. My understanding is that there is actually an MOU in place as per what was requested from the provincial government for us to be able to approach them for funding. They requested that all of the municipalities in the corridor get an MOU on, uh, before we go back to them. It is my understanding that MOU has been signed and that there have been initial conversations with the province around around what, uh, what it is that we need. And what uh, the hang-up is now is really identifying what that funding model is and how much can we actually put of our municipal budgets into the pot and how much do we need the province to weigh in at, the, at that piece. And Is this deal linking between us and Whistler alone or is this also including Pemberton? It includes Pemberton. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I remember when we had a bus running back and forth, there was a big contention between how much each municipality was contributing to the bus, whereas they talked about distance and usage. So when, when you say that's going to include Pemberton again, or, or, I'm wondering if we're going to be hitting the same pitfalls as we did before. Yeah, and I think that really depends on what the funding model is between municipal funding and provincial funding. There's definitely a lot of negotiation that needs to happen in those discussions, and it's very early stages. But we have to understand how much of it is of our budget that we can reasonably put forward to this. I think if we have an MOU signed with these other municipalities, we are in a fairly strong position to go back to the province and say, hey, this is what we need and here's why. Well, speaking of uh, contentious issues and levels of government, and uh, I'm talking about all levels like SLRD and regional and the big, big topic that everyone's talking about now. I think you're, you're smiling. I know what's coming. It. You know what's coming? Garibaldi at Squamish. There it is. So where do I crack that iceberg? What I'm actually amazed most of is the amount of information that's floating around on social media that is totally, totally not right. So as you see it, where do we sit and where do we think we should be going with it? Yeah, so my understanding of Garibaldi at Squamish as it currently sits is that um, from our position in Squamish, it is outside of our municipal boundaries. That is a that is a fact. There are a few ways for that project to move forward. One would be for the provincial government um, to designate it a resort municipality. Um, the provincial government has said that it is not willing to do that, but that was under the previous level government, so never say never, things might change. Another option is for the SLRD to to take it on, which my understanding is not highly likely. My, my latest information on that was that it would be become part of the district, but they would have to negotiate with the SLRD about the land. Right, that is the third model, is that the district of Squamish would it extend its boundaries to include the area that is Garibaldi at Squamish. My perspective on that is that if, and that is the most likely scenario moving forward is my understanding, doing so brings a huge amount of financial risk and liability to the district of Squamish. Doing so would require significant amounts of community outreach and engagement on what that actually means and what are the benefits that we may be able to realize from taking on that level of risk. 
I'm not saying that I'm completely opposed to the proposal. We don't actually know the full details of what the proposal are is at this point, particularly what the benefits could be and what the benefits package would be. Well, the benefits um, would be money. The benefits would be, would money, be money. The benefits. Tourism. I mean, we, tourism, we're looking at jobs, of people in here. Um, and that scale of real estate development could potentially bring enough money to the table to start to address some of these really critical issues that we're talking about, whether it's regional transit, affordable housing, economic diversity. There are options there that I don't think we want to close the door on necessarily, but we need to approach the conversation wide-eyed and have a conversation in our community about what that means. What does it mean? What does it mean for our culture? What does it mean for our community? And what opportunities does it bring? I'm not as cautious as you are. I'm I'm more for than against. My my only against for Garibaldi and Squamish is down the road. So when we're looking at infrastructure, so if they've agreed to put a road in, awesome. Not sure if this is true or not. See, this is what I'm saying. It gets all over the place. Uh, if they're going to have a satellite police and fire on their own resort that level there, so that's great. But then, if they put these things in, my question is: down the road, when the 20 years or 30 years, when you start to have some infrastructure failings, who fits the bill at that point? I don't have the answers to that sitting here at this table right now, and I think that that is a big question: is is what is the financial liability that that potentially holds, both the development, but also what if the development fails? So what if they put in the road? What if they build half of what they propose to build, and then the project flops? Right. Who is then responsible for the existing infrastructure? I agree uh, that that could be an issue, but I mean, this is someone who is bringing in, uh, this is investors and obviously a company that's taking the risk, right? So it's, you're talking about limiting risk. I do think that there are a lot of discussions to be had. I think that there's also a lot of false information out there and there's a lot of... Vitriol. <laughs> vitriol is a very good word to use. Um, and social media is one of those platforms that allows a lot of this information to go viral very quickly. And so what we need to do is have an informed discussion about what that looks like with the community as a whole. Yeah, and I think the the current council is trying to do that, trying to have as many meetings as possible, which then gets skewed as they're trying to cram through everything as quickly as possible before the new guys get in there. And I think people need to realize that no decisions will be made until the new group is in there. I don't think they could just approve this project by, you know, when's election time? By October 20th? Yeah. I don't think that's ever going to happen. So I think people need to really cool their jets a little bit. Yeah, the Garibaldi at Squamish piece has been proposed on the books for 20-something years. Um, it's definitely gone through multiple evolutions. It's um, it's definitely further along than it ever has been, but it's, it's not something, it's not a decision that's going to be made today, tomorrow, or even next year necessarily. I think this is one of those issues that should be put to referendum. Yeah, I think that is definitely a, a very valuable way to try and get community engagement on this level of question. Um, I think that that is definitely a very good option moving forward. The challenge with referendums is one, getting enough community engagement and making sure that people have the right information in hand to be able to make an informed decision. And that, that's tricky, something that we have to work towards. I asked this to all the councillors um, before we wrap up. I, you're going to be in a, in a room full of, like yourself, a rookie. There could be a possibility that you're all rookies, even in the mayor's chair. Uh, One advantage I can say, the silver lining, is that it'll slow things down a little bit. So as everyone learns procedures and and policies and so forth. But are you looking forward to the challenge of of basically sitting in a room with pretty much people who don't know what they're doing? I would be lying if I said, or if I didn't say right now, vote Doug Race. (laughs) 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 If I'm allowed to say that. Um, 
there is definite, it, it's interesting to look at for sure. And it, it, it definitely made me pause before, I mean, I can still pull my name out of the hat um, if need be the until Friday, but I'm not going to, don't think I'm going to in any stretch of the imagination, but it is definitely a, a moment to pause and think about why that might be. When you get that level of turnover at any leadership level, and, and if you think about the district is a business. It is a public business, but it is a business and your and your council and your mayor business are your people, yeah. business for the people. It is and the council and your mayor are your board of directors. Having historic knowledge in that institutional memory is really critical for functional boards. I've I've sat on a number of boards and steering committees from small scale organizations like the Squamish Climate Action Network that I've been involved with for the last few years to large scale international boards. It's kind of a little bit of a flag sometimes when you have that level of turnover. But at the same time, it does present a lot of opportunities. And I think it is it is a signal of the amount of work that has been on counselors' desks. With regards to that, I am ready for the challenge. I'm excited about the challenge. I have the capacity, the energy, and the flexibility with my day job that I'm able to put 110% into this position. And that is why I decided to go for it. I interviewed Doug Race. I, when I told him, like, everyone's was so glad when he decided to, to run again. They're so happy. They were so relieved. He thought that was great. It was, it was flattering. But he also said, you're going to have to count on your staff and treat the staff like gold. And uh, they they put a lot of work in, and uh, you keep the staff happy, and you'll, you'll be we'll be puttering along just fine. But yes, Doug is running, uh, and he's he's looking forward to it. But because uh, <laughs> I told great him, to hear. I told him you're going to do a lot of the heavy lifting, my friend, a lot of it. And he's like, ah, uh, fine. And his wisdom is very true. It, staff will will carry the brunt of that as well as as um, any incumbents. Whether there's also Susan Chappelle and 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 Karen Elliott that are running for mayor that would have some understanding of process. Um, but the staff are definitely what's going, they are the, the glue to that organization and they're the ones that are gonna carry a lot of that burden for the first little while. And I, I couldn't put this to, to Susan or, or Karen, like if you don't make it, please stay along with the transition. I can't say that yet, cause I don't wanna jinx it, right? So the, they're in for a tough race. I mean, we have five Five candidates, candidates at mayor, yeah. And there's 23 counselors and you are one who's gonna hopefully stand out with the 22 that are left over. What's, uh, what's, what's, what's your line? Give me your pitch. So I'm not a career politician. I don't intend to be a career politician. I'm doing this really because I think that I have skills and experience to bring to the table. Um, I'm excited about the challenge and I'm excited about the opportunity and I'm excited to work with this community to make it a livable community, to make it a community that can grow sustainably and a community where we can all find a sense of place and belonging. And uh, more information to get in touch with you in case people have more questions. As of tomorrow, my website should be live, which is jennastoner.ca. Uh, you can find me uh, on email at jennaforsquamish at gmail.com. And uh, I will also have a Facebook page, uh, Jenna for Squamish. Thank you very much for doing this, Jenna. And a huge thanks to you for, uh, the, for, for the passion project and making sure that our electorate is informed and engaged in this election. It's what makes politics happen. Democracy at its best. Definitely. Hands down. Good luck. Thank you. This is the Sea to Sky podcast. If you have a comment or story ideas, please check out our website at seataskypodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Sea to Sky podcast. Thank you for clicking us on.